from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today we'll learn about the UW System's new direct admissions program. Then we'll tell you about Milwaukee's neighborhood traffic management program. Most people think of it as a speed hump program. We're trying to get both the department and the public to think about more than just speed humps and also starting to talk about how we could structure it so that other traffic calming improvements could be paid for. Plus, we'll explore a Mayette event that tasked sound artists with creating a score for silent films. I think you had certain ideas of how you wanted the music to sound, but that was no data that, that, that I ever received. Well, yeah, but, but I wasn't expecting like sure, to read yeah. my mind or anything, but you kind of did in some parts of it. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. Next summer, incoming high school seniors at some Wisconsin schools will get college acceptance letters before they even apply. The UW system is launching a direct admissions program, which admits high school seniors based on the student's GPA and course completion. Direct admissions could help students who would otherwise not apply for college, and it could help the financially struggling UW system increase enrollment. To learn more, WUWM education reporter Emily Files spoke with UW Systems' Julie Amen. As Associate Vice President for Enrollment and Student Success, Amen is part of the team leading the Direct Admissions Initiative. So usually high schoolers their senior year will apply to colleges and then hear back a few months later about whether they were admitted. So how will Direct Admissions change that process? Sure. So the, our direct admission process basically makes it easier um, for students to get through the admission process. And so, first of all, they'll receive admissions offer letters from the universities of Wisconsin in July before their senior year. And so that letter will say, you know, congratulations, Emily, you've been admitted to da, 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 all these different you know universities that they they are matched with. Um, and so it'll accelerate the process and also make it easier. They won't actually be applying for admission. They'll just be told, based on your high school grades, based on your high school courses, we want you at a UW university. And congratulations, and let's let's start talking and figuring out how we can get you matched. And what's the goal of telling students that they're admitted to college before they even apply? You know, I think one of the goals that we have is really trying to um, help more Wisconsin residents realize that they are college material, that there is a place for them at a UW university, especially for students who might be, you know, first generation college students. They might not necessarily feel that, you know, they are college material or they don't have, you know, someone in their life, a, a, you know, a family member or a mentor, you know, or someone who's really sort of said, hey, yes, you can go to college and, and you should pursue that path, you know, by taking the admission process out of it or changing it, but basically saying before they even submit an application, we want you, we're hoping to really open more, more, open more eyes to the fact that, you know, they are college material and that we want to see them on one of our UW university campuses. And then each of the 10 UW schools that's participating in this first phase of the direct admissions program, they'll have like a GPA benchmark. And if a student, for example, has a 3.0 GPA, and that's what's required for 
eight of the schools, um, they would get an admissions letter saying, congratulations, you're admitted to UW-Milwaukee, UW-Parkside. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, if someone has a 3-5 GPA, they could get a whole bunch of offers, you know, you know, to all the UW universities. But yeah, you have it exactly right. That's how it's going to work. Will students have to complete a follow-up application to actually end up at one of these schools? We're really changing the application or admission process entirely. So we're telling them they're in, and then we do want to engage with them. So we'll ask them to click on a link and and basically submit a little bit more information, but it's not going to be, you know, the high school grades. It's not going to be their courses because we already have that from the student information systems that and working with the high school. Um, We'll ask some, some, you know, some basic information about their interests and things like that. Um, They won't have to complete the essay as part of that process. So really it's about kind of asking them, you know, for a little bit of information, but then also asking them which of those offers are they interested in pursuing? You know, so they'll still have, you know, plenty of time in that whole senior year to make some decisions in terms of where they want to go. We just want to know from them, uh, based on our offer, what more do you want to learn? So in your example, like let's say they got that, those eight different offers, maybe they wanted to stay closer to home. So maybe they want to say, well, those three within a I don't know, two hour radius, those look interesting. And that the process that we have them go through would be allow them to connect to those three that are closer to home. Or it could be the ones that have academic programs that they're really interested in. Maybe it's they're interested in nursing. So which ones have those? You know, so that process, you know, where where it would have been a traditional application has been changed really to kind of make that connection to those UW universities that they're interested in learning more about. So they don't have to write any essays. Nope. (laughs) Wow, the college admission essay. Taking that out of the equation. Right, right. Yeah. I mean, well, you know, the, you know, honestly, one of the benefits of direct admissions is that it, it removes a lot of stress from the traditional, you know, admissions application process. Um, it's a lot of work to, you know, to apply to a university. And very often there's an essay. There are for, you know, for our U- universities here at, the, at U- UW. So um, that can be pretty stress inducing, especially if you happen to be a first generation college student and don't have that experience or don't have that, you know, support and everything. So that's one of the real benefits of direct admissions is that it removes a lot of stress. So why is the UW system doing this now? Um, The enrollment numbers have been declining at a lot of the schools. So how does that factor into this? Sure. Well, I think direct admission has sort of been gaining momentum nationally. You know, this kind of approach to admissions um, is a is a new way of looking at um, the students we're trying to bring into the university and a new way of maybe trying to grow enrollment here. So yeah. So you know, I think all universities that are engaging in direct admissions certainly hope that you know, like any other admission strategy they decide to employ, that they're going to see a bump in enrollment. And you know, we're no different than than anybody else in that. So there's a deadline coming up for the high schools to participate in the first phase of this direct admissions uh, process. So what is the deadline and, and what work has to happen on the high school end? 
Sure. So in our phase one, um, we are actually partnering with um, high schools that are using Infinite Campus or Skyward as their student information systems. Um, those student information system vendors have um, been working with us to be able to make alterations to their systems um, in the high school to really kind of automate this process and make it easy for those high schools to deliver um, those direct admissions offer letters that we're, we're going to be working with them on. So um, so about um, over 80% of our public high schools are actually eligible to participate um, in phase one. Those are the Skyward and Infinite Campus schools. So right now, um, as you suggested, we have gone out to the high schools and we've been doing information sessions throughout the fall semester and answering questions and everything. And now we're at the point of actually being able to um, ask the schools to go ahead and, and raise their hand and say that they want to participate in phase one. They have until December 8th to do that. We have about 178 high schools that are already opting in, representing about 129 uh, districts. So our numbers are, are rolling in every day. Um, and we'll look and sort of see where we are later uh, in December um, and then start to get to work with those high schools that have opted in. And um, the the individual UW schools also had the choice of whether to opt into this and Madison, Lacrosse, and Eau Claire, I believe, are the three that uh, are not participating in direct admissions at this time. Um, why is that? Um, well, basically, all of the universities, you know, have their own, you know, kind of, I think we talked about earlier about capacity issues and then also acceptance, you know, uh, rates and processes and everything. So um, we knew that probably Madison was not going to be, you know, participating because they just have a different type of student profile. They have a different acceptance rate and they also have capacity issues. But every university will be looking at that every year. We'll give everyone the chance to say, hey, here's what we've learned. Here's the profile. You know, do we want to make any changes, you know, based on uh, what we've learned to the, you know, to the GPA uh, criteria um, and everybody will have a chance to opt in. Um, so the timeline here, you're planning to send out the first direct admission letters in July 2024 to rising seniors, right? Yes, yes. So it would be the class that graduates in 2025 that would be getting these letters. And they will start on our campuses in fall of 2025. Um, you've mentioned before that, you know, other states have done this direct admissions um, before. Minnesota is one of them. So what evidence from other states that are doing this? What are the results? So this other institutions and also so some of the direct admissions um, uh initiatives are at the institution level, some of them are at the state level. So there's different types of structures. Um, the institutions that have participated in this in the states, they have seen slight increases in enrollment. Um, not huge, huge swings, um, but at least a small increases in um, an enrollment. And there's also the financial piece, of course, a student could be admitted, but then might not get enough financial aid to to um, for it to be feasible for them to go. Absolutely. So. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something that, you know, we're very focused on affordability. And those are some of our, you know, our other efforts around and enrollment and student success are not only trying to bring new students into our UW universities, but trying to help them um, make sure that it's an affordable opportunity for them to pursue. So there's all kinds of efforts underway on trying to, to tackle that issue of affordability. Anything else that you want to add? 
Um, you know, I think that, you know, we are really, really excited about dir the direct admissions um, initiative here at the universities of Wisconsin. We're really hoping to um, make um, this educational opportunity more accessible and approachable um, for more of our residents. So we're really excited about trying to um, engage with our high school partners in this process. I think it's going to um, be a game changer in terms of how high school students are engaging with the UW universities. Julie Amon is Associate Vice President for Enrollment and Student Success at the UW System. She spoke with WUWM's Emily Files about the UW System's direct admissions program, which is launching next year. From Milwaukee's NPR, this is Capital Notes. We break down the big political news affecting Wisconsin. I'm Ayan Silver, speaking with J.R. Ross, editor of WisPolitics.com. He provides a roundup of the Wisconsin developments you need to know. Here's our latest conversation. Hi, J.R., great to have you on Capital Notes as usual. No, well, thanks for having me. So as of last Thursday, there's another big case in Wisconsin's court system that will likely eventually make it to the state Supreme Court. Seven unions representing teachers and other public workers in Wisconsin have filed a lawsuit attempting to end the state's near total ban on collective bargaining for most public employees under Act 10. First, can you remind us about Act 10, which has withstood numerous legal challenges over the past decade and why it's been important? Well, it was a law pushed through uh, after being proposed by then Governor Scott Walker in 2011, approved by Republicans, that basically took away the ability for most public employees to bargain for pay raises, benefits, working conditions, those kinds of things. It did not, however, apply to certain uh, protected classes, mostly law enforcement, police, firefighters, those kinds of folks. And it's been a huge change in how the government does business because it eliminated that ability for most public employees, so like teachers, to bargain for what their pay was going to be or what kind of you know, benefits they could get. And advocates have said it has saved billions of dollars uh, for taxpayers because there have been lower costs with higher contributions from public employees to their uh, health care and retirement, for example. Opponents have said it has unfairly restricted uh, the powers of public employees to band together and advocate for themselves. And two, that the way it was done was inappropriate because it created two different classes of people, which is basically what this lawsuit's about. And would that be police and other public safety workers and then everyone else? Yeah. The, the lawsuit talks about like a favored kind of quote-unquote class of public safety employees, and it points out that not all public safety employees were covered by that exemption to Act 10. Uh, conservation wardens, uh, corrections guards, for example, they're not shielded from the impact of that law. And the lawsuit argues that the unions that were not uh, kind of brought under the acting umbrella were ones that backed Scott Walker in 2010, that it creates a different class of employees, essentially, and that violates the Constitution, bars against treating people di differently. And now, it's key to note with this case, it is not going right to the Supreme Court. It goes to circuit court first. It could take a while for this to get to the state Supreme Court. So if it goes to normal process, you go circuit court, then you go to the appeals court, then the Supreme Court. Even to get there, there's no guarantee the court will hear it. Because remember, Justice Janet Prose, which during the spring campaign said she had signed the recall petition against Scott Walker and that she might recuse herself from an Act 10 lawsuit if it came to the court because of that. Now, we'll see if that, you know, that's a ways away. But just kind of keep in mind that there's no guarantee this case will get there. 
And if it does, there are a lot of big issues for the court right now. We have redistricting before the court right now. We have a request pending to take up a challenge to school choice. There's a case in the Dane County Courts about abortion that's still weaving its way through that level. So there are a lot of big topics that are on the kind of little to-do list or things you want to challenge the Supreme Court that could get there, but they're in the pipeline. Well, and in addition, uh, conservative justice Brian Hagedorn was former GOP governor Scott Walker's chief legal counsel and had a role in drafting the Act 10 law. But, you know, yeah. so there so you never know like what it's up to. There's no requirement for recusal for justice. They have to make a decision on their own if they can be impartial here in the case. That, but that's that's a ways away. <laughs> we got a few steps before we get there. And it's pretty much fallen on on partisan lines, right? I mean, in terms of who's supporting or who's against. For the most part, you know, I mean, there were Republicans who voted against Act 10 back in 2011. Uh, so it's not like it was a straight partisan vote, but you don't find many Democrats in the legislature who are pro-Act 10 or anything like that. And what's interesting about Act 10, too, is that um, by exempting certain public safety employees, especially police, you know, their costs for those workers have gone up more than other workers. And so like in Milwaukee, for example, uh, we had a big discussion this past year about shared revenue and you know, police representation and how many officers they should have. One thing that was noted was that uh, their police force was less than half of their overall employees, but well more than half of their costs because they weren't forced to go undergo these changes. And it's interesting, though, that you probably would never see Governor Evers sign a bill that brought police in, uh, under Act 10 because he's opposed to it. And you won't see Republicans propose a bill to put police under Act 10 because they're big supporters, you know, of them. So... This is an interesting dynamic on that. They have a, a tangent, but an interesting dynamic about what's going on. You're tuned into Capital Notes. I'm Ayan Silver, speaking with J.R. Ross, editor of WizPolitics.com. So, J.R., there was some news last week on the state Supreme Court front. Uh, Republican Brad Schimmel announced that he'll be running for the open seat in 2025. What can you tell us about that? So, Brad Schimmel, former Republican Attorney General, now a Waukesha County Circuit Court judge, announced He's running in 2025. You might think, well, why announce now? That's a long ways away, right? But there's actually some, some reasons for him to do it now. I mean, one, look, every campaign is about raising money. That's a, the lifeblood for a campaign. And it's going to be tough to raise money for anybody in 2024 who's not running for president, U.S. Senate, Congress, the legislature, et cetera. But, you know, Schimmel can work it, connect with donors, remind them that he's out there and trying to kind of say, hey, once you're through your focus on these 2024 races, don't forget about me. Two, in the courts can take up a bunch of issues between now and, and uh, spring of 25. He can comment on them. He can say, look, I'm a candidate for Supreme Court. You should pay attention when I say that I disagree with this court decision. He can you know, pipe up and remind people who he is, and that might help build awareness about him. And three, you know, if you have a, a primary in the conservative side for the Supreme Court, it could drain resources. Now, remember, with Supreme Court, there's not like a liberal primary, conservative primary. There's a one primary if there are more than two candidates. And if they're, usually what happens is there's two liberals or two conservatives. Um, last time it was two and two, and the top two vote, vote getters get through. If you're a conservative, if you have two conservatives in the race in 2025, you could spend resources you don't want to. It could be a little bit draining. Um, Ann Walsh Bradley, who was first elected to court in 1985, she's up for election in 2025. Now, she has told us that she plans to run again in 2025. She would be, though, uh, I think she turns like 75 or would turn 75 right before being inaugurated for another term in 2025 if she won. So, you know, people are kind of waiting to see to make sure she runs. But 
Incumbents don't really lose in Wisconsin. Traditionally, we've only seen two last 50 years, Daniel Kelly in 2020, uh, Lewis Butler in 2008. So, you know, it's, it's not easy to take on incumbent justice, but it gives Schimmel a chance to get things moving, get rolling on it. And, you know, and he's got some pluses and minuses. He's run statewide before and won. He's also run statewide before and lost. You know, he, there's that yin and yang. He's got a big fundraising list from his days as attorney general. He's also, though, you know, got knocked in 2018 for things like a lawsuit overturning the Affordable Care Act, a donation he got from a PAC for Purdue Pharma, um, a backlog of rape test kits in the state crime, you know, just things like that, that they could come back again in a campaign in 25. We'll just see what the environment's like, because it's a long way away. And you think about its attorney in, in politics, you think about what will be like in a year and a half what the environment might be like. Well, looking, uh, zoning in on the court as it currently, currently exists, um, We've got, of course, a redistricting case before the state Supreme Court, and connected to that is that when Justice uh, Janet Protosiewicz, who's backed by liberals, when she took the bench, and before she'd made any decisions, Republicans said that they would consider impeaching her because of her comments about redistricting, and GOP Assembly Speaker Robin Voss eventually backed off of that, but then he got some legal advice from former conservative state Supreme Court justices. Fast forward, a liberal watchdog group filed a claim that that panel of justices violated the state's open meeting laws. But then last week, this is what I want to ask you about, JR. Last week, a Dane County Circuit Court judge rejected that claim. What can you tell us about that? So there really was more about uh, kind of a process thing than a, a, a substance thing. And by that, what I mean is that with state law in Wisconsin, if you want to have a private enforcement of an alleged open means violation, you have a couple options. One is you go to the DA in that county and file a complaint. If you do, though, you've got to wait tw- either for that DA to say, I'm not going to prosecute, or 20 days. American Oversight didn't do that. They went and filed a complaint with the Dane County DA, Ishmael Ozan. Then five days later, they filed the lawsuit uh, in Dane County Circuit Court. And Judge Frank Remington said, look, you know, looking at the, com- the allegations in this complaint, uh, if they're all true, then this panel, uh, that's what you want to call it, violate open meetings law by meeting uh, about how it's going to advise Robin Voss. That said, because American Oversight didn't follow the proper procedure, he must dismiss the open meetings part of their complaint. Now, there's a second piece of that lawsuit. It's an open records complaint. Uh, they're looking for documents from the advice that Voss got. And we saw a document dump from American Oversight a few weeks back that included all kinds of stuff in there, including text messages between Robin Voss and his chief of staff about uh, a local conservative think tank, Institute for Reforming Government, which they referred to them as quote-unquote idiots. Now, you don't really want your text messages insulting somebody who's an ally out there in the public sphere, but that's what kind of happens with these lawsuits. I mean, American Oversight... No, they're not happy that they had that part of the suit dismissed, but the records thing keeps going. They can keep seeking records. And oh, by the way, in the process, they can be a thorn in the side of Robin Voss. Don't forget, this group filed several lawsuits over the Gable investigation that Robin Voss authorized, produced all kinds of documents. They got a reward of attorney's fees for winning those open records lawsuits. And just really kind of, again, it's about kind of just keeping the, the focus on Robin Voss and these decisions and what he's doing. And once while you get a good document that you can say, hey, look, there's something here that should be looked into. 
I think American oversight might have implied that they had a strategy behind not following those rules or potentially that they wanted the documents to come out sooner. I think the group's executive director said that despite the ruling, the lawsuit still resulted in documents getting released to the public that, quote, otherwise might have remained shrouded in darkness. Is that, yeah. Yeah, but that goes to that point. It's about kind of keeping the screws to Robin Voss. Like those documents coming out, they, they got stuff. That revealed, for example, that former Justice Wilcox and Prosser had advised Robin against impeaching Protosewicz. Like that stuff maybe wouldn't have ever come out if it hadn't been for the lawsuit. So again, they lost that piece of the suit, but they kind of got their ultimate goal, which is getting those documents out there. And, you know, they're finding this on you know, principle as well, but also just the ability to kind of keep that focus on Robin Voss as part of the plan, part of the, the, the inspiration for doing these things. All right, a lot to a lot to keep an eye on. Um, thanks for all this, Jr., and thanks for joining me on Capital Notes. Anytime. That was WUWM's Mayan Silver speaking with Jr. Ross of WIS Politics. You can hear Capital Notes every other Monday on Lake Effect. And did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. Coming up, we'll visit a recent event at Mayan, which challenged sound artists to create scores for short, silent films. But first, if reckless driving or speeding is a problem in your neighborhood, there's actually something you can do about it. We'll explain next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Reckless driving was declared a public health crisis by the city of Milwaukee in 2021. Residents have no doubt seen cars speeding down busy roads and making risky maneuvers. If you live on a street with a lot of traffic and reckless driving or speeding is a problem where you live, there's something you can do about it. It's called the Neighborhood Traffic Management Program and it offers residents a chance to try and mitigate reckless driving in their own neighborhoods. WUWM's former community engagement coordinator, Rafa Munoz, spoke with city engineer Kevin Muse about the program earlier this year, who shares how you can take part. The Neighborhood Traffic Management Program is about 15 years old now, and it was created to give residents an opportunity to request engineering solutions that can calm traffic on their street. So it's really designed for, at least as it currently exists, primarily the residential parts of the city, to address what people see outside their front door as far as speeding or other challenges they might face on their street. Who can request these measures? Is it just renters? Is it just property owners? Is it anybody? Yeah, so any resident can request it. If you Google Milwaukee Neighborhood Traffic Management Program or NTMP, you'll get a link right to the Department of Public Works website. Are all streets eligible for the traffic measures? Can you talk about what that eligibility would look like for this this program? Yeah, and so I do want to 
clarify for listeners that we're actually in the middle of rethinking some of this program within the department. So the information you'll find on the website is what the program has historically been, which is very much focused on neighborhood streets, local streets, not anything that you would consider to be even a slightly busy street, certainly not a business street or a larger uh, street that we call an arterial that carries major traffic like a burleigh or something like that. We are reconsidering some of that within the department and trying to figure out how we can meld what we have uh, authority do, to do from the council into something that can be used on more different types of streets across the city. So yeah, focused on neighborhood streets right now. Most people think of it as a speed hump program. We're trying to get both the department and the public to think about more than just speed humps and also starting to talk about how we could structure it so that other traffic calming improvements could be paid for by adjacent property owners and, and other types of streets across the city. As it stands now, if you're on a bus line, that you probably can't get a safety measure implemented on your street. Not a speed hump, no. Speed. So yeah, so there are, we do actually, as it currently stands, we do have a specific improvement that we tend to use on, on streets that have bus lines. It's called a speed table. There aren't too many of these in the city yet. A couple were installed, I think, last year on Superior, right near South Shore Park in Bayview. That's probably the only place people could go experience a speed table if they wanted to in the city. But we're looking at a number of other improvements that do work with a bus line or you know do work well near a fire straight station where you, you know, with a speed hump, we wouldn't want to slow down a fire truck. And these are the types of improvements that larger vehicles can navigate over with, with uh, more ease. I want to jump into the steps for a community member to access the traffic safety measures through the program. Like the first step you, I think you'd kind of mentioned is there's an application and then there's also signatures that they have to mm -hmm. gather. Can you talk to us about that and how they access those forms? Yep. Yeah. So the easiest way to get a hold of those forms is to go to the website, uh, the Department of Public Works website. As I mentioned earlier, you can just Google Milwaukee Neighborhood Traffic Management Program and it'll come right up. There's a link right there. The form itself has the instructions as to you know who to send it to and you can mail it or, or, or scan it in an email, the application to us. You can also just call the city, the general city hotline, 286-CITY, and they can help direct you to, to the right person to talk to to address this issue. So there's, you know, if you don't have internet access or something like that, of course, you you can still access this program. So that's kind of the first the first step in the process is filling out that application. That individual will also be able to talk you through the actual petition process as well, just to make sure that the person who's interested in getting the traffic calming improvement on their street can actually make sure that they're they're doing it correctly for when we actually receive those forms back. I think the suggestion on the website was at least get fifty percent of the affected street. Right. And that's something that we, you know, it's not a hard and fast requirement, but the reason we focus on the 50% is because that is what's required at the end of the process to actually get the council's approval to move forward. So we, again, we're, we don't want people spending effort on this if there isn't enough support on the street. And we also don't want our staff spending effort on it if, if it's not likely to be approved by the council at the end of the process. So uh, my side street is super busy. I want to access the program. I submit the application. I get over 50% of my neighbors to sign on. I submit those forms, what's the next step? Yeah, so traditionally what we had done after that was done a speed study on a block and consulted with the aldermanic office uh, regarding how interested they thought that the residents would be in, in this process. With some of the changes that were implemented during the pandemic, the city received American Rescue Plan Act funds. The council directed some of those funds to essentially help reduce the amount that residents have to pay as their share of the traffic calming improvement, which really increased the number of requests we were receiving. So as of right now, we don't do that speed 
lead study process or anything like that. We just rely on the residents are telling us there's a problem. If more than 50% of the property owners support it at the end of the process, we move forward. And so it's much more simplified than it used to be. Frankly, that speed study step in many cases wasn't necessary anyways, because the streets that are mostly used so far for this program are such low traffic streets that the residents are sometimes the best judge of what's going on there anyways. After this happens, is there a step before it goes before the Common Council? Is there some sort of cost assessment? What does that look like? Yeah, so a postcard is sent out to all the property owners on the street. That would be impacted by the actual assessment for the improvement. And property owners can, of course, say yes or no. Some choose not to return the postcard as well. And then we provide that information to the Public Works Committee of the Common Council when they have the public hearing and they consider each of these. The final step after that is the actual public hearing, which residents are also welcome to attend and provide comment. You can attend remotely. You can also attend in person and provide feedback during that public hearing. It's usually the first item on the agenda each each time a speed hump or any other traffic calming improvement is up. It really can depend on the block. You know, some blocks it's seven property owners and four of the seven will show up, which actually just happened this week at the Public Works Committee meeting. And sometimes it's a block that has 20 or 25, you know, different entities involved and no one will show up the postcard will say general support and it'll just get approved. So public hearings can kind of go whichever way the, the residents want them to go. Can we talk about how long this will all take? I guess the front end people submitting the application form and gathering signatures, that's going to depend on how fast they do that. No more speed, speed study. How long does it take for uh, the postcard survey to go out? How long does it take to get to actual committee hearings? Yeah, yeah. So the, the length of the time in the process actually depends on where we are in the year. Because what we try to do is, like most of our construction, these are constructed over the summer and fall. And so we try to set the process in motion to be ready for essentially a, a mid to late spring approval process as best we can. So it's less about how long does it take and more like if you request them between you know June or, or even earlier than June of one year, the process to get to the approvals may not happen till the next spring. But it's less about how long does our internal process take and more about how do we set them up so that the construction season can be hit um, to, to actually build the improvements. You guys have a, a general cost on mm -hmm. the website. Can you talk about how much generally does it cost? I think it's, it's per foot, right? And then yep. talk about that and then who pays for it. Sure. So the cost can, for an actual speed hump installation can can vary, depends on what's going on with the contracting industry. And, and we help bridge some of the gap with our paving funds from the general levy here in, uh, in the Department of Public Works. But the actual residents are assessed per linear foot of their property frontage. So how wide is your lot is, is, is what determines the assessment. Right now, we are still under those reduced assessment rates due to the, the Rescue Plan Act funds that the council directed to this program. So it's $2 per linear foot. So most lots in the city, I shouldn't say most, a typical lot in the city is often thought to be 40 feet wide. So you're talking about 80 bucks. So that would be for a speed hump. Speed tables are more expensive. They're usually constructed. They are, at least in the city, always constructed out of concrete rather than asphalt. So those are more expensive projects. Those can be up to $12 per linear foot on the lot. And again, those are things that are targeted towards streets that are uh, higher use or might have more emergency vehicles, might have a bus line, that sort of thing. We also have traffic circles, which right now are at, I think, 450 per linear foot on the property too. And so right now, those rates are based on a reduced rate once 
the funding from the Rescue Plan Act runs out, we will be talking with the council about changing that rate. Traditionally, our rate, instead of about a third, which is, which is what it is right now, has been a 90% goes on the, on the share of, of the property owners. And so like as a speed hump, you can generally speaking, think of that as like three times as much as what I just described would be what a speed hump cost would be per linear foot. If this process moves along and it goes to vote, that gets approved, it's still on this um, discounted rate. The people that actually get charged for it are the property owners, mm -hmm. not the renters. Right. That's part of your property tax bill. Yep. Mm -hmm. How spread out can people, is it over how X amount of years? What can that look like for property owners? Yeah. So any uh, special assessment like this in the city can be spread out over 10 years. So theoretically, people could distribute it. There is, a, there is a simple interest charge on that. So if you do choose to spread it out, you do pay a slightly higher amount, but it's not you know compounding interest or anything like that. So it's nothing too extreme. And yes, property owners can distribute it over 10 years. Is there anything else you want to add about the program or how people can access it? Just to note that this is all going to be changing probably before the end of this year. We'll be talking internally, trying to come up with a more robust process again for those improvements that fit in different types of roads across the city rather than just a traditional residential block and also that again the assessment rate could be changing in the near future and so that's something that you know depending on where you are in the process if you're about to start it right now don't count on getting the two dollars per linear foot because that money may be already consumed by the time you complete the process. Kevin Muse is the city engineer for Milwaukee. He spoke with WUWM's former community engagement coordinator, Rafa Munoz, earlier this year. And we want to hear your story ideas for Lake Effect. If you have an idea for an interview or conversation that you'd like to hear on the show, give our community connection line a call. The number is 414-251-8970. You can also submit your ideas at wuwm.com slash lakeeffect. Coming up, we'll explore Redner's Rescued Cat Figurine Museum in Menominee Falls. But first, we're headed to a recent event at Myad, which challenged sound artists to create scores for short, silent films. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. If you were given a silent film and told to create music for it, what would you do? At a Myad event last month, artists were tasked with doing just that. Myad faculty invited eight filmmakers to create short silent films, which were then sent to sound artists and musicians to create scores. The challenge culminated in an event called Live AV, where the scores were performed live with the films. WUWM Eric Von fellow Nadia Kelly was there. She spoke with artists about this unique collaboration. For one film, two guitars played along to flickering images of trees and happy families. In another, titled Direction of the Road, a passing train illuminated by a bright light moves slowly to the sound of a flute. 
Mayad alum and artist Darian Hood was tasked with scoring a film called Desire Path by Sophia Theodore Pierce. The film is a collage of scenes, including flashing lights at a bar, images of nature, and a woman doing her makeup. Hood explains that when she first received the video, it resonated with her. This influenced how she chose to score the film. In the video, you see lots of footage of like horses and horses running around and like open shots of water and people. And I just think that to me, it really just read as being open and free and like going where you want to go and like doing what you want to do and just like going for it. Like, what's your path? What do you desire to do? But you'll make it through. It starts with a feeling. My process with the video, I got the video and I watched it and that kind of just like gave me some ideas for like lyrics and like, you know, the overall vibe of the song that I wanted to create. So when I'm up there, the video will be playing behind me and I'll just be like singing along, vibing in front. The co-producers of Live AV are Mayad faculty members Kim Miller and Peter Berkman. They say this project pushes artists to collaborate and create in new ways. So it's kind of um, a situation of the sum of the pieces are greater than the whole, where, you know, the video plus the audio creates something um, new that wouldn't have been possible. Collaboration is a moment where you make yourself vulnerable. There are certain things that you're really comfortable with, especially if you're an artist most artists like to have things their way at certain times. Like they, they like to know, they like to be in control of the setting and they know for the most part what they need to do in order to, to have an outcome that, that they, that they want to have. I think I celebrate all these artists for being people who may have made themselves vulnerable by being willing to step up and open themselves to the unknown, which is that, yeah, that third thing that happens when two people come together. I asked artists Roman Adarasinka and Lewis Morton about their experience giving up control in this collaboration. Morton is the filmmaker. His video is called Leg. As the title suggests, the video's main subject is an animated leg, dressed in bright yellow pants. Musician Adarasinka improvises his score, playing his synth in time with the tap of the foot. For both Idirisinka and Morton, having their work interact in this way created unexpected moments of synergy. Idirisinka speaks first. We as creative individuals, we tend to, we all place expectations on our work. And when I spoke to Lou, I knew, I mean, we also talked about it. I think you had certain ideas of how you wanted the music to sound, but that was no data that, that, that I ever received. Well, yeah, but, but I wasn't expecting like, sure, you to read yeah. my mind or anything, but you kind of did in some parts of it. Yeah, even the, the beginning part I felt really was what I was thinking, like just kind of 
percussive thing lighting up and then like especially the last third or so with like the slowdown and the electronic stuff I thought that that was really rad. Those were the couple parts where I was like whoa that, that kind of read my mind there somehow. Tammy Williams is a film studies professor at UW-Milwaukee. She attended the Live AV event because, as an expert in silent film, she was excited to see the different combinations of silent videos and music. Silent film was never silent. It always had an accompaniment, whether we're talking about films from the silent era, early 20th century, or, or even contemporary films today that are in the global international art film uh, movements there are the films are always very visual because that communicates across national boundaries and across ling linguistic boundaries so even if there, when there's wordlessness there's always still sound and and uh, and there's always rhythm um, so when tonight we were looking at films in which the musicians or sound makers were creating sound for the films you can also say that those films already had a, a sense of sound about them even before they were made. Williams says that events like Live AV help people realize that sound and image are always interacting, not just in art, but in everyday life. So one thing I think it's important to, to be aware of is that we hear images and we see sounds. So whatever we're looking at, um, we're going to hear a sound, an accompanying sound in our mind, and in whatever we're hearing, we're, we, we, we visualize uh, something. So they're natural partners, obviously, sound and image. And I think this kind of experience helps us be aware of that, or makes us more aware of that. November's event was the fourth iteration of Live AV. Organizers Kim Miller and Peter Bergman hope to continue creating space for artists to get out of their comfort zones and collaborate in new ways. That was WUWM Eric Von Fellow Nadia Kelly bringing us sights and sounds from November's Live AV event in Milwaukee. Less than an hour outside of the city, there's a unique Wisconsin attraction right in Menominee Falls called Redner's Rescued Cat Figurine Museum. That's Museum. The cleverly named gallery is a pet project for founder Sean Redner, who donates all of the admission funds to rescue cat organizations. I spoke with Sean earlier this year when the museum was featured in Milwaukee Magazine. Tell us a bit about uh, how you came up with the idea for this museum. The museum itself wasn't actually supposed to happen. This all came out of me finding sobriety and needing something to do. So I had a lot of free time after I stopped drinking, so I started hunting for cat figurines at the various uh, thrift shops. And eventually I had enough cabinets full that I decided it would be a great idea to try to help use the museum to help the cat rescues in the neighborhood. And that's when I said to my wife, I got a great idea. We're going to open the house to the public one day a month. We're going to ask for a $5 donation, and then we're going to donate the money away. So the museum itself was never the intention when the first few figurines were purchased. What is it that you like about cat figurines? Well, we have nine rescue cats, 
but the cat figurines themselves have their own unique personality and some of them have a lot of history behind them. So it just, you know, kind of went along with the cat rescues and the cats that we have. So a, a, a lifelong commitment to cats. No, it actually started when I moved to Milwaukee in 2008. The previous tenant had left her cats in the duplex I moved into, so I kind of just fell into the cat world on accident. Interesting. Had you been uh, a fan of cats previously? I didn't really care or just, you know, dislike them. They were just kind of there. <laughs> sure. So if someone comes to the Cat Museum, what are they going to see there? Oh, we currently have roughly about 3,500 pieces of cat-related uh, art, sculptures, wood carvings, cat figurines, cat dolls, cat light switch covers, if you name it, and it looks or resembles a cat, it's in the museum. There's really no limit to what you will see here if cat-related. There's artwork, crocheting, a needlepoint, anything cat-related has found a home here at the museum. What do you think people would be most surprised to see at the museum? Both the amount of stuff and how actually, how clean it is. <laughs> we get that a lot. Like, I cannot believe you guys have nine cats here. Sure. Now, as you look around your collection of the many figurines, the art, all of the cat-related accoutrement, what sticks out to you the most? What are the pieces that you like the best? So I like the stuff that have people's signatures on it or their names. We have a picture of a black cat and a mime together, and on the back of it is a, a note to somebody's mother about Happy Mother's Day. So when we find things, because most of the stuff in the museum has been donated or comes from secondhand shops, when we find stuff that has a personal attachment to it, we tend to gravitate to liking that stuff more than your everyday run-of-the-mill cat figurine. Sure. Now, you're currently just open one day a month, is that right? Correct. We have one official open house a month, which falls on the third Sunday of each month, and that is from 11 to 5, where no appointment is necessary. But we also open, open by appointment Monday through Friday from 5 to 8 p.m. and any time on the weekend after 11. What's your biggest piece of advice for people who are interested in checking out the museum? Just give me a call. We will open the doors. We want to share this place with as many people as possible. The more people we can get in here, the more that we can donate back to the cat rescues. All right. How how much have you been able to donate so far? Um, last year, we donated a little less than $2,000 is what the museum raised. How much would you like to donate? Oh, millions. There's never enough money in cat rescue. We, but this was our second open house today, and we're off to a pretty good start. So, I mean, we can never, never donate enough money to them. All right. Well, Sean, thank you so much for joining us here on Lake Effect and sharing your work. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Sean Redner is the founder of Redner's Rescued Cat Figurine Museum in Menominee Falls. The museum was featured in Milwaukee Magazine earlier this year. And that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. 
Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll learn why Milwaukee might be the city that decides the 2024 election. That's tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect. On listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR.